This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. 
With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 66. My badge saved my life. We got a few dedications to this uh, podcast, John. And one comes out of Arkansas, which is very timely and very sad. Senior Corporal Jeff Neal of Hope, Arkansas, died August 4th, 2021, in Plano, Texas, where he was receiving medical care for complications derived out of COVID-19. He was 55 years old. Arkansas Fishing Game Commission. So just uh, like to dedicate this podcast uh, to Senior Corporal Jeff Neal of Arkansas. COVID, it's touched all our lives in one way or another. And I don't hear this a lot. I've had a few friends that know somebody, but it's never been this direct and to, to lose an officer. And I know there's been several lost across the country because we're on the front lines. We're interacting with people. We're doing that thing. And Jeff was a, a decorated officer. It was very sad. And I know that Arkansas Fishing Game is reeling from his death. So, um, yeah. Yeah, this was uh, this is kind of a shocker. You know, we don't hear too many of our our fellow uh, thin green liners or or even uh, you know any of our law enforcement brothers and sisters dying of COVID related stuff. But this is an example. You know, Jeff was only fifty five, and uh, I got to give a little memorial and shout out and dedication to my uncle Gerald Norris, who was a retired Louisiana law enforcement officer uh, in his mid to late sixties, and just died a couple months ago due to COVID related deaths. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, uh, complications there. And it's just, uh, it's horrible to see it happen to anybody. And it certainly hits home for uh, any of our law enforcement brothers and sisters that are, that are out there on the front line. So uh, to Jeff and his family, um, our condolences go out to you guys and uh, we're praying for you. The other thing I wanted to do a dedication to was the, the two officers that died August 19th, 1997 in the shooting. I was involved after they were slain, uh, Scott Phillips, New Hampshire state police and Les Lord, New Hampshire State Police, both of them, my friends, my brothers, my mentors. I had been assigned to that area very, 
Very recently, I only had a year on, I worked two days before with uh, Scott Phillips to do an investigation in some camps, camp break-ins, and he asked if he could (laughs) use my four-wheel drive truck to get up there, of course, with me too. (laughs) But these guys, you know, and Les Les had a laugh like mine, and if you listen to this podcast, you know I have a very distinctive laugh, a very robust laugh, and Les Lord had a very similar laugh, and I've been told that numerous times by friends and family, that when I laugh, it reminds them of Les Lord. And these guys took me under their wing. New guy in the area. It didn't matter what uniform you wore, John. You're a rural New Hampshire, and we all did the same job. Scott helping me to learn investigation skills, breaking into those camps. We'd been at a wedding for another local police officer, Jimmy Crosley, that Saturday. Yeah, it, it was. It, it affected a community. It certainly affected our tight group of law enforcement. A dedication to them, too, so... Yeah, for sure, uh, Wayne. And, you know, as I researched this with you, and I know this is the first time we are publicly going to talk about your your shooting, you know, incident way back at the start of your career. But um, just, I felt like I know these guys, you know, like mm-hmm. I was there in Rich Carey's book, In the Evil Day, that really chronicles this so well and that we have on the show around this series around your your shooting incident. Um, I felt like I got to know them during that, during the read of getting to research this and know your story a little bit better before we dive into it and discuss it. And then certainly I I can see the bond you have and had with those guys um, as, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, badge specific. It wasn't patch specific. You guys were just a team uh, doing the role law enforcement thing like we all do on the game warden front, right? Mm. These were your brothers. It wasn't just uh, an allied agency response for help. And then to see everything go down that day, which I, I, I won't give away yet because we're going to certainly talk about it this many years later. It still hits home for you. I know it does. And it's got to and it's tough. Mm-hmm. Warden's Watch, episode 66. My badge saved my life. All right, brother. Now this one that we're talking about today, it's all about you. It's all about your most critical incident that you ever experienced during your career. This is all about probably the most dangerous day. I think I'm speaking accurately on that, that you experienced in your career. One of the most frightening, one of the most heroic, but one of the most educational for you as a young game warden starting out. And I'm going back all the way to the start of your career. And you'd only been on a year when this shooting incident occurred on August 19th, 1997, you've been on about a year, right? Uh, a little more like two. I had been assigned to that area for about a year. I was hired in 95, so just a little more than two years. You know, when you, and that was, that was your officer-involved shooting incident of all officer-involved shooting mm-hmm. incidents that, you know, you could have, that you've experienced, and it almost took your life. You were dangerously close to not surviving and having a great career that lasted 28 years. And now here we are talking about it on a podcast, I know. shortly retired after both our careers. And it's surreal, Wayne, because I got to let our listeners know, we started to breach this idea when we met for the first time at an IWC conference in Lake Tahoe two years ago. I think I had been retired at a month or mm. two months or whatever it was. And I was on your podcast, this new Warden's Watch podcast, uh, in your hotel room, getting interviewed over my first shooting incident when you know my partner Warden was shot and almost killed. And it triggered a lot of emotion with us both. Mm. And we talked, you know, we talked off recording about your incident a little bit, which I knew very little, if anything, about, you know, until we had met. So um, it was really emotional eye-opening for me, understanding what you went through that day just on the periphery before I got to dive in and research it. And now here we are partnered up on this awesome podcast platform and hearing these Mm. stories uh, all over the country. But this was your hometown. 
This was working with allied agency law enforcement guys that you were building friendships with and partnerships with that, you know, have lasted a career. Unfortunately, because we lost two state troopers, uh, we, we lost that day that were friends of yours uh, that you had worked with before. Uh, your life was almost taken and some civilian lives were taken. And this goes back and uh, tell us how it started. Tell us a little bit of background about the infamous Carl Drega, who was the suspect on this. He was the shooter. And as Rich Carey described in a recent interview we had with him on his amazing book, and I'm going to hold it up because I just got the signed copy from, from Rich in the evil day. And I had read it on Kindle to research for this interview uh, beforehand. This was one of the very first, if not the first, quote unquote, mass murder shootings in the country before Columbine, before all of these, uh, you know, media large mass death shootings have happened that total, like I think he said, 293 uh, in, in U.S. history now, which was just mind blowing. But this was one of the first, if not the first, and it happened on your watch. Take us back to that day, what your mindset was, where you were at in your career and how it all started, man. So I didn't have any experience with Kyle Draga. Never knew him, never heard the name prior to this. And I think it's because I was a young warden and I probably wasn't as, as up to date or listening to much what the activity was going around in the community and such. You know, really focusing on catching poachers, so to speak. I just... Right. <laughs> And that day, actually, I was at the office that I was, we were had a, the fair was coming up, the Lancaster Fair, and we always do something for that for outreach to the public. And back then, you, we didn't have computers generating things. So I was using an overhead and actually scratching out uh, the, the county, Northern Coas County, and putting the officers in the districts that they patrolled so people could look up at the county and understand where these officers were and putting pictures on that. And I, I left the office and I went up to uh, now Colonel Kevin Jordan's house, who is, you know, my patrol partner, I always call him. He, he had the patrol beside me. So we worked really close together and he was on a day off and it was actually a Canadian field day was starting that night. Uh, the next day was a field day, a game warden field day. And that's, we have a lot of these in the Northeast where game wardens gather, we do training, we do competitions together. And my intention was to be there the next day to, to, to get in my truck and uh, to head up to Canada to participate in this game warden field day. So it, it was, it's kind of unique that I was there talking to Kevin and uh, other officers pulled in at the same time because they were on their way to Canada doing the same thing. John Wimsad, who ended, retired as our major, uh, Jim Nealon, who is still on the job today as a lieutenant, they, they pulled in because they were on their way to Canada. And just as they were pulling in, we were listening to the radio of about a stolen state police cruiser. And we were listening, a, a young officer, it's my area, I want to get involved. When we first, we kind of like, you know, did a kid steal the, the cruiser or, or what's going on? And that was kind of my, my, my mindset. So mm -hmm. as I left there, you know, I'm looking for a stolen state police cruiser. And I booted. I, you know, young officer, we like, we, when you first get to drive with blue lights on, you know, that, that's, that's exciting. So I was going to a call and I had uh, my blue lights on and I was heading north. As I get to North Stratford, which is probably 15, 20 minutes from where I was, I, I encounter that state police cruiser in the state of New Hampshire, but I watch it make right. its turn across the bridge and go into Vermont. 
I still have my blue lights on. I had just gotten a fairly new cruiser to me. It was my lieutenant's old Tahoe. It was a pretty nice rig uh, as a new guy goes. I just right. just got right. that. <laughs> and I was pretty proud of it. Uh, but as I start taking pursuit, I hear someone yell, turn off your blue lights. And you know how you go on a call. Your mind starts working, stolen state police cruiser. And my mind had worked Well, once he goes into Vermont. And here I am following... <laughs> you know, a, a New Hampshire state police cruiser into the state of Vermont as a New Hampshire game warden. So then your mind starts thinking about jurisdictional issues and, and things like sure. that. And I'm thinking, well, I just was told to shut off my blue lights, which isn't a bad idea because I'm going to follow this guy uh, until I can get some Vermont help. That That's what I'm sure. thinking. We're going to coordinate with Vermont because they're going to have more authority than I do. We, you know, as you know, a lot of us are sworn federally for U.S. Fish and Wildlife as well as on the ocean with the JEA stuff. So we have two federal credentials, which we carry as well as fishing game officers, usually nationwide, I would say, so we can deal with migratory birds and stuff like that that are you know, more right. of a federal animal. So I cross into that with somebody yelling at me out of a white K car, Aries K car. If you guys remember those Aries K cars, kind of boxy and stuff. And I wasn't familiar with that car either. And, but I was kind of focused on that, that cruiser crossing into Vermont. So I shut off my blue lights. And as, as I get into Vermont, there is a T, uh, there's an intersection. It's a four way. And I can see really good in front of me. And I can see really good off to my right. But down to my left is a abutment, a bridge abutment that where the railroad goes over. And it's a cement. One, one car basically has to pass under the cement uh, underpass to go to the other side and I can see dust hanging in the in the air there and and you know as a game warden we're, we're usually in tuned to a little more of that type of thing and I'm thinking well a car just pulled in there so he's trying to ditch me and I know there's a, like a long driveway on the other side of that butman because I'm fairly familiar with that area we stock both sides of the river the Connecticut River is mm-hmm. in New Hampshire so we stock so I'm, I'm fairly familiar with that area so I start down that way, but I start slow because I know that he just cut that up there. So I'm kind of slicing the pie, so to speak, with my yeah, cruiser. Yeah, going in cautiously. Mm. Yeah. And that's a technique I think we're all taught as we go around a corner just to give a little bit, little, give a little bit, give a little bit. And so you don't expose yourself. But, but what I saw was the state police cruiser pulled over and at the back with, with just beside the trunk, so standing right beside the trunk was a person with a campaign hat a trooper's hat on poised and aiming a gun at me and and this you know, wow and this is all slow motion john now i mean even then it was yeah. kind of slow motion and i'm just staring at at, at this guy and, and think about what your mind's going to be comprehending at that point because my mind was still trying to figure it out i had all i knew was a stolen state police cruiser and here's a guy in a campaign hat pointing a gun at me and it, it wasn't clicking and then the first round goes off, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm sure I didn't hear it, because we were 20, 30 feet away. We were close. Right. We were very were close. close. About 15 yards or less, huh? Yeah, like close. very close. And I, I remember the, 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 the impact uh, pushed me right into the seat, and I'm like, holy crap, I've been shot. And again, it it's all seems like you know very slow motion. I, I get 
down behind the engine. And I, I'm going to interject here just a little bit because I had some training as a park ranger in Sylvan, North Carolina. I went to a 10-week academy there. And cover and concealment was taught to me in a very different way that I will never forget. And I just want to put this in for some of these new recruits and new law enforcement guys. There was a, a deputy sheriff lady there that was, um, she was probably 300 pounds or more. She wore deputy sheriff's uniform. She had heavy makeup. She had Virginia Slims. She would smoke Virginia Slims all the time. Right. I did not have a lot of respect for her, but she was helping with the training and stuff. And I got, we were doing scenarios and I got out from behind a car one time. And next thing I know, I got hip checked by this 300 pound woman onto the <laughs> pavement. I scun my, my, my elbows up. I scun my forearms up and she got in my face and she started yelling, you're dead. You're blankety blank dead. And I'm like, what the heck lady, you know, just happened. Yeah. Yeah. This lady. Yeah. Wow. But from that point on, cover and concealment meant something so different to me. I, she'll never right. know the impact she had on me because I then knew the difference between cover and concealment. Cover being that maybe a, a round won't go through it. Concealment being hiding in the bushes that rounds can come through for those people not in law enforcement that listen. Very, very different things. And I, I will never forget that day. And I, I always wonder if she saved my life because from then on, I remember what cover and concealment is. And we all know an engine block is good cover. That was the in best my- and really only significant cover in many, many cases on a vehicle. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I dropped down and I started backing up and I, my adrenaline hadn't kicked in yet. I backed up slow. And there is a store there called the Banville store. And there was people outside. It was a nice sunny day, August 19th. I uh, had my windows down. And I, I look up and there's all these people there. And they're, 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 of course, they're curious what's going on. And I start yelling at them uh, to get out of there, to get out of there. And just about then I can hear my cruiser taking more rounds. And now the adrenaline dumps. And right. I, I step on it. And I go skidding across the intersection and God knows how fast because I was just flying and I hit a big, what I believe was a, a, a maple tree, half dead, but it stopped me from going into the Connecticut River being launched probably 20 feet in the air into the Connecticut River. It wow. stopped me dead and yeah. it, it broke the tree. So my cruiser's nose is hanging up and I, I'm looking down and my arm is laying in my lap and I can't move it. I, I looked down and I just, I willed my arm to move and it would not move. I'm like, uh, and I had my shotgun handy. It was right beside me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, um, I can't use that because I can't operate the pump anymore. Right. It would have been nice to have a shotgun I, I, looking back at it. Sure. But, but when I drop out of that cruiser, I drop, I bet, 10, 15 feet straight down right into the, I'm, I'm literally hanging on the bank and it's a steep bank. And I drop straight down into cover. I get my handgun out and I work my way up the riverbank and into some bushes so I can see my the nose of my cruiser and I can see where he's going to have to come from. And I set up an ambush too. And I remember breathing so hard thinking he's going to just hear me breathing if he's coming. I'm laying in these pricker bushes, blackberry bushes, raspberry bushes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're prickling me. I'm laying down and I'm breathing heavy. And I remember... Mm-hmm. My handgun is so slippery because it's got blood all over it. And I'm blood, yeah. And and to hang on to that handgun, 
the nice thing I'm seeing is there's a lot of grips coming out now and, you know, people sometimes say, oh, it hurts my hand. Yeah, well, guess what? You can hang on to them and it gets slippery. And that's the whole intent because I remember how slippery that handgun was that day with blood on it. And as I'm laying there, I start hearing my name being yelled. So I make sure that it's all clear. And I drop back down over that bank another 20 feet. And I work my way back up past my cruiser where I meet uh, Officer Steve Breton from Colebrook, who, who okay. grabs me. And we're behind a house now that has stairs, actually. That's how steep this bank is. It actually has stairs going straight up. It, and we work our way up where he commandeers a vehicle. And, and until, you know, until Richard Carey's book, I never realized what Steve was seeing because that adrenaline in me was pumping so hard. Right. He's seeing me all bloody and the things that he experienced because he started this whole thing in Colebrook too and, and followed Carl Draga down to my shooting incident where he then commandeers a vehicle. <laughs> and now he's seeing blood all over my arms. Uh, badge had actually, the first round it hit my badge and put it right into my chest. I still have scars today where it was embedded. That when I got to the hospital, they actually had to cut around it uh, because it was embedded and the doctor actually had to take it out. But this, yeah. this is the scene he's seeing. And I, I guess I never really thought about that until recently, till reading Richard Carey's book and saying, you know, it's so hard because he kept telling me, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And I remember saying, Steve, I know I'm not going to die. Well, <laughs> that probably, that probably yeah. wasn't a very good statement on my part looking into it. All I remember is he commandeers a vehicle and they're driving as fast as they can and I'm wicked thirsty and I'm like, can we can we stop at the store and get a soda on the way? And <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> yeah, well, you're, yeah, all that stress, man, all that adrenaline. And, uh, and then your badge saved your life, which is a crazy mm. part about this story and so such a blessing. But take us back to when you first contacted him. You were slicing the pie from behind the driver's seat, right? Mm, yes. And you were driving slowly using the car kind of as you're, you know, basically leading with your vehicle with mm -hmm. some cover and slicing the pie. And you take that first round. And was it the first round, Wayne, that went through the windshield or through the vehicle and was the one that actually hit your badge and deflected? It was that first round. It right? was. It, it was. Yeah. It was the but, first round. But immediately following that, you didn't hesitate. You didn't freak out. You didn't say, oh, crap, I'm going to die. I've been shot. You basically... You, you did some retreat. You got to mm. as much cover as you could by taking the vehicle and moving it out of there and making it your mobility, making it your exit strategy, correct? Yeah. And like I said, slow motion. I remember putting it in reverse and, you know, not backing up, not stepping on it, backing up slowly and stopping, looking at that store, seeing all those people, not knowing what was going on. I mean, that he was just targeting law enforcement or targeting people chasing him to let them know to, to get out of there before I start hearing rounds again. And uh, we'll, we'll have to put that picture up because we later did a demo with that cruiser and we put actually rods through it and uh, almost everyone hit my seat. So had I not been laying down, I would have took more rounds for sure. It, it, it's amazing how many went into my, my driver's seat. Yeah, it was madness. And I was just going to reference that picture that's in Rich's book mm. and it shows all the directions. And that thing looked like, you know, one of the police cruisers out of that movie Heat, right? Yeah. When they have the big robbery scene down in LA and, and no exaggeration, your cruiser was shot to crap. I mean, he got a lot of rounds in. He had shooting experience given his history. Mm -hmm. He was familiar with firearms. He was a good shot. And, uh, you know, you were not only lucky, but you exercise great judgment and great mechanics of just getting low 
in the vehicle because you're right. All those, all those rounds went right in your seat and it had that first round not been deflected, man, we might've lost you that, that day. Yeah. And later they actually found the center of my, the center of my badge has a state of New Hampshire seal in it. And they, they, as they, you know, looked at that scene and that's on the cover of Richard Carey's book, uh, it was my shooting scene. They actually mm-hmm. found that, but they didn't understand what it was until later that it was actually the center of the badge that had been kicked off because my window was open. So here is the stated New Hampshire seal, you know, a little round thing sitting in this scene that th- nobody can put together until later that that, that was yeah. my badge that had been hit. Wow. Uh, and yeah, those are the, the rounds that I took again, that, that, that deputy sheriff and, uh, North Carolina probably instilled that cover thing into me for the rest of my career because I always remember, you know, this is cover, you know, wheels are a great cover behind the, the, you know, the, the rim of the, the wheel is another cover. So I, I had those in my mind and I think it's because of her. You know, I, I used to have this uh, gun that used to make a ricochet noise when I was a kid. It went, bam, bam. <laughs> right. And those were the noises that made. When they were coming through the cruiser, those were the noises that those those rounds made. And I can remember that, too. And then I just remember tire marks were left, too, is stomping on that. Because, of course, now I get adrenaline flowing pretty heavy. And I know I've been hit. And I got to get out of there. You got to get out of there. And that was the, that was the obviously, the, the only and proper step to take to save your life mm. and inadvertently save some other lives. But what was he shooting for a long gun? And how many, how many rounds went into your cruiser? How many rounds were fired just for our uh, tacticians out there, you know, look, looking back on the scene? Yeah, so he was using an AR-15, a two-two-three round, and thank God it wasn't anything higher. It probably would have gone right through the badge rather than deflecting. Right. And we took eight rounds, I believe, seven into the passenger uh, compartment, my driver's side, uh, and then one in the door right there. Yeah, and like you said in Jim Carrey's book is is that picture and. I have it. Uh, we can put that up on our Patreon site or something for additional content. Yeah, I have those pictures and. Yeah, it was, you're right, he was a good shot, and he and he focused on that area. Sometimes I wonder if he actually saw the badge and, and shot at the badge, but who who knows from that point, um, you know, and, it, and it's funny because this story continues on, and Colonel Jordan's going to be talking about it, but mine, I end up going to the hospital, uh, and like I said, taking a very crazy ride north. Uh, when we get into the town of Colebrook, I remember Steve Breton, who was in the back seat. Getting on the passenger, uh, it was on the passenger side back of this Jeep. It was a Jeep Cherokee. He was sitting on the, the window ledge, yelling and screaming, trying to get people out of the way as the driver was honking and trying to clear people out of the way so we could get to the hospital. And then when we arrive at the hospital, I'm still conscious. They gave me uh, ice chips because I was thirsty. And my lieutenant showed up at the hospital and I just bought a pair of boots. Uh, you know, <laughs> and you know how yeah. for for a new guy, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollar pair of boots is a big deal. <laughs> big deal, man. And, and what do they do in hospitals? Poor game warden. I know the feeling. You get a pair of boots; they're going to last three, four, five years, maybe. Yeah. Hopefully. And I know what happens when I get to hospitals. They they get out those scissors and they are cutting cutting things off like crazy. And I'm like, don't cut my boots. <laughs> save my boots. You got to save my boots. <laughs> yeah. And my, my lieutenant was there, and he, he came down. He was unlacing my boots to pop my boots off because he knew that was a big deal. And when I saw him, all I could think of is I just wrecked the cruiser he just gave me. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> and I'm like, oh boy, I just wrecked your cruiser. And he's like, don't worry about the cruiser. <laughs> um, and then trying to get the badge that was embedded in my chest off uh, the doctor, when they went to cut the uniform off, they cut a circular pattern around it. And I just remember him looking at that badge and trying to figure out how he was going to get that out and how deep it was and was it bleeding and you know and to see again what Steve Brenton saw the first officer on scene uh Dick Marini was there as well who was uh with liquor you know my bicep half of it was it was shredded it was uh it was gone you know I I carry a, a pretty significant scar yeah. to this day I remember I remember seeing those scars in detail the first time we met when we did mm. your podcast recording and um that's it's a significant loss man and you can see that scar tissue and that was from that deflection just so i think it's really critical that everybody listening or, or watching understands how amazingly lucky and uh. blessed and how everything came together to save your life that day because for that two two three round to go right into your vitals heart and lung area mm. deflect just enough and horrible that it went into your arm but thankfully mm. it was a non-vital you know, a non-terminal um, wound, and the and the the damage that shrapnelized little bullet did was extensive. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it was a it was a life saving deflection, wasn't it? I, I, absolutely, absolutely. If it had not, uh, like you said, hit that little badge, it would have gone mm-hmm. right into my chest cavity, into my heart area, and we wouldn't be doing this podcast today. You know, gripping with everything yeah. that came about that week, I always. This is what I grasp. I, you know, everybody has their time, and it just wasn't my time. Because I, I often wonder, you know, you say luck, you say this. and it, it was hard to grasp, but we talk about, I think we talk about it with Paula Booth, the counselor, in the last episode of this, is uh, that if you, you feel like it should have been you. You should have been the one dead, not those guys with kids. I didn't have any kids at that time. You, you have that survivor's guilt, they call it, which right. is so real for survivors. And I'm sure a lot of people out there have experienced it. But, and to deal with that, I, I think I dealt with it in saying it just wasn't my time to have that little amount of metal or tin deflect off of that and, and to save my life to go, like you said, into my bicep, out my shoulder, not a fatal wound. Um, I just, but to, to look at, you know, what those guys were looking that day, they thought it was a fatal wound. You know, Steve Brenton sure. thought it was a fatal wound. And <clears throat> after reading Richard's book and stuff, I stepped back and I said, I, I just never saw it from that angle. I, I got helicoptered out of that to Dartmouth uh, Medical Center. And when I got down there, I remember tell, they, they were telling me, you know, there's a lot of press around. We're going to cover your face and, and bring you in. So they put a white sheet over my face and took me out of the helicopter. And Brian Suttmeyer, who was a, an officer, I believe a sergeant back at that time, was down there to meet me and Mm -hmm. he saw them taking me out with that sheet over my head and about collapsed he said he's like i i just you know i broke down wayne i was crying and i thought you were dead i thought you were dead when they had done that just so the press wouldn't take those photos or see you know that type of thing but it had such an effect on another what platform and these are all little things, and, and it, you and I would have had the same experience if we were meeting a helicopter, too. We would have thought right. the same exact thing. The last person I saw was uh, Major Gray. I believe he was a major. He might have been a captain at that time. He, he had met me in the first – he was the, the last person I remember before I going, going into surgery to, uh, to fix my arm and then wake up. But uh, 
Colonel is going to to talk about this uh, in the intro on the next podcast, but I, I didn't know what had happened really uh, that day because I was sent out of the hospital, flown to another hospital to to have surgery and stuff. I didn't really know what happened that day. I found out the next day watching the news. And, mm-hmm. and not anybody's fault. I woke up, which I don't know if they expected me to wake up or not. The TV was on, and I, I got to watch that um, everything that happened on the news that next morning, which. It was probably a good thing, a bad thing. I I don't know. It was uh it was traumatic. So to to find out your friends had died. Yeah, it was horrible, brother. And I mean, I I still I feel for these guys. I feel like I know them through you and all the conversations we've had about the troopers and you know the civilians and the friends in those communities. And and you know we just we just talked to Kevin Jordan about this that these small communities where we both come from. Everybody knows everybody. It is a family. And it's not only a law enforcement family with different badges and, 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 and different agencies, but the victims, people working in the courthouse, you know, and I won't go into all those details because we're focusing right now on your incident specifically, but everybody can get that in the other episodes we filmed on, you know, with, uh, with Rich Carey's book, with Paula. I mean, we've really covered a, a lot of that stuff comprehensively, but specifically, it, time heals a little bit every day. But there's always that solemnness. There's always that little bit of darkness, right? And there's always that pain. And I feel the same way about people we've lost in other parts of the country that I worked with. And uh, condolences to you and, and to all the thin green liners and thin blue liners on your side of the world that to this day have that have that incident memorialized in their brain that they'll never forget. And you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you have this played out slow motion image of everything that happened that I'll bet is as fresh today as it was back in way back in on August 19th, 97, when you were Mm. just a young pub game warden, because your mind reacting to the impacts of those bullets, the stress, you were alone. You didn't have backup, typical game warden scenario. You know, you got to be the cowboy out there, the lone gunman taking care of business by yourself. You have no idea where this guy's coming from. If he's going to counter ambush you, you're injured. You're still trying to stay in the fight, which, which brings up, you know, mindset, you know, Colonel Jordan, we just got off an intro recording just uh, before this interview on the mindset of the first responders that were there. Nobody was going to stay on the highway that knew you, no matter what they worked, who they worked for, they were going to go into the woods. They were going to risk their lives. They were going to find this guy and neutralize this guy, this Carl Draga that was on a rampage just to kill anybody he could and wreak havoc. And as a result of the selfless sacrifice of all of those sheepdogs, all of your brothers and sisters out there, he didn't do too much more damage after that. Could have been a lot worse. And it's just a testament to our law enforcement community of selfless sacrifice of the heroes that were out there to get the job done. And you had to try to get that job done by yourself injured and you continue to fight through it, man. And kudos for that. And the game warden involvement from other agencies was epic too. A, there was a the Canadian field day that I talked about before. There was Rhode Island officers coming up that heard about the shooting and responded to the hospital and did security. Kurt Blanchett's the current, he's the deputy chief in Rhode Island. Uh, he was there that day and did security for the hospital, filled in where they could. Paul Fink, uh, Vermont game warden, was the third the third one on my shooting scene and, and started by uh, 
taking charge there and preserving that shooting scene. So, and then the New Hampshire wardens that jumped in, and the colonel's going to address that. John Wimsad, Colonel Jordan, Kevin Jordan was involved. Jim Nealon, my, my former lieutenant Doug Rolinski did, did ended up doing the scene security at my shooting scene for a very long time. Which, uh, okay. if anybody knows Doug, he's a bull in a china shop, and the last thing you want to do is, to, is, is, <laughs> is tell him you have to stay at the shooting scene and not get involved. And uh, I know that was traumatic for him, that he couldn't sure. leave the scene under orders and he was ready, you know, he, he wanted to be in that too. The guys that were off duty wanted to be there and found out about it later, you know, were, were hurt because they, they weren't involved. And some of these pictures that you see from that day of bringing Jeff Calder out that shot, there's two game wardens on the front, Tall Bogardis, Sam Sprague, on the front of that litter carrying them up so that's why this is warden's watch that's why we're talking about this we're highlighting the game warden response that day so that's that's the part i know but that's the part i can see too and that's the part that i heard after is all the game wardens jumped right in to help to go find him you know sam sprague was in the final shooting tom bogart was there to carry the the litter out with uh jeff calder on it uh one of the guys that got shot after i did the state police border patrol John Fife, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was wounded as well. Uh, we were all in the hospital together, which was good. <laughs> right down to, uh, you know, the, the colonel mentioned it today when we did the intro for the next podcast, picking me up at the hospital three days later to, to go to funerals. Uh, they, yeah. they, they, they wanted in. They, they weren't going to let uh, anybody else drive me back up into the district and to, to go to those funerals. Uh, you know, that, that, was a, that was a good feeling that your brothers came down and, going to pick you up and bring you up and uh yeah hold you up because I, I needed holding well, and, that day <laughs> yeah you know that that support was i mean invaluable man and, and the love there was just inspiring it was inspiring to hear kevin's story on that and get his perception of it you know not having heard it from you yet specifically in detail till this interview now but the other interesting thing about that is the doctors really didn't want you to go the medical staff didn't want you to leave at that point but your thin green line brother said, hey, <laughs> he needs to be at that funeral. He wants to be at that funeral. And I think about the stresses, the PTSD, all of that psychological and emotional trauma that you experience if you don't go to that funeral. Yes. You know, it, all those things matter. And, and I, I think the public doesn't realize sometimes how much closure and you know, working through mourning for the loss of the officers that don't make it in these officer-involved shootings we've been involved in, right, um, that we've worked next to, the survivor's guilt thing you just brought up, Wayne, mm. it is so critical that we process that. It's so critical that we share it. It's so critical that we tell these stories because trying to suck it up like we did in the old days, and uh, we certainly talked about this with Paula, amazing counselor, and she you know, shed a lot of light on how modernized we've gotten nationally on the law enforcement front of dealing with critical instances and working through them. And not trying to bury him and just be tough and go back out there. But I mean, this was way back in 97, man. Mm. It was kind of the stone age for peer support, for psychological counseling. So inadvertently, your guys made sure they, they were starting your healing process. They were, they were you know, mitigating the damage mm. from um, what you were dealing with. And not physically, but emotionally and in your recovery and all of that. And uh, before we go into your recovery and getting back... Those were the early days. I mean, I'm thinking back. I started in 1992, and I can tell you right now, 92 to even up to 2000, tactical training for game wardens to be up 
with some of the, you know, more tier one, quote unquote, you know, urban agencies, SWAT like tactics, uh, active shooter incidences were not being trained coll- collaterally. Mm-hmm. You just weren't seen unless you were on an elite tactical unit within a, within a police agency, any of this training t- of dealing with an ambush situation like you dealt with an active shooter like Draga, a mass murderer. Did anything change after this? Since so many agencies were involved, there were some horrible deaths. You were almost killed. What did you guys do as an agency in the fishing game front to lessons learned, to debrief this thing? Was, were there any changes in tactics, equipment, firearms to make progressive steps? Was there anything needed out of that? And did the other agencies share some of that with you guys? Yes, absolutely. The, the first thing, the radio communication was absolutely atrocious. No one could talk to anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that that did change, and we ended up in the digital age where we could actually talk to state police. They could talk to us on our frequencies. We could talk to them. Border Patrol as well, to even to the fact where they put other radios in some of our cruisers so we could actually communicate with them on a wholly different band. Right. So, um, you know, Chris Egan works on the border a lot, has two very different radios, one's directly to Border Patrol and one's for everybody else. But that was addressed, which because it, it needed to be, it was it was huge. Uh, probably would have been a whole different scenario had I known that he had just killed, you know, four people in Colebrook. I, I wouldn't probably have responded mm-hmm. the, the way I did. Stolen state police cruiser to a murderer is, is totally different. You know, on your response, uh, the carefulness of it. It's always hindsight. It's always easy to look back on. But one thing that changed was our, our shooting platform for ourselves. Uh, we went to Mini-14s at that point. We were the only agency, I think, that had rifles. They were a two fifty seven Roberts Bolt action uh, right. with a scope or, or such. So I had my rifle with me, but it was a bolt gun, the Ruger range rifles, the Mini-14s, which was yep. a great platform and that I used most of my career Nice. Yeah, which was was huge because that was one of the things that was identified in that shooting that we were lacking. And I think state police started to address that as well because they didn't have rifles at that time. And if they did, it was like you said, the tactical teams had them. So they they started to address their their, their shooting platforms as well. And this was the beginning of, uh, yeah, dealing with uh, officers involved shooting and emotions and stuff like that. I, my, my colonel, Ron Alley, was probably on the cutting edge of that. By uh, he, he called up New York because they had a response team, and he knew they had a response team. So they sent two officers, one who taught me in college, Lieutenant Denning Lindsley, uh, was actually one of my college instructors at the SUNY State University of New York at Cobleskill. And, and that wasn't for me, so to speak. We talked later, but all everybody else involved in that shooting, he brought them in for the officers that were involved in that so they could they could sit mm. down with game warden Pierce. I mean, think about okay. this, John. This was 24 yeah. years ago. Game warden Pierce sat down and talked about it. That 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 wasn't happening hardly anywhere. We didn't certainly didn't have the resources to do it then and it, it was yeah. on the cutting edge and, you know, I'll give Colonel Alley, you know, the, the, the kudos for for doing that because that I think that made all the difference and, you know, like Colonel Jordan said today in, in taking care of your people. Yeah. You know, we we now know today how important those things are. We didn't know how important they were 24 years ago. Um and I'm sure he took some some crap from uh, other agencies for doing that type of thing. But what developed out of that was a critical incident team that we developed, Colonel Kevin Jordan being involved in it, me being involved in it, that we, we helped a lot of people through our careers decompress and debrief 
from DOT deaths to fire department deaths to search and rescue debriefings after a search and rescue where it was a fatal case. Um, we debrief our, our, our volunteer search and rescuers that were probably experiencing the same type of uh, critical incident that we were. And so we were able to reach out to them and start taking care of them as well. I think uh, those were some huge good that developed out of you know this, this, this bad situation for sure. Yeah, you guys were definitely ahead of the game. You know, you capitalized on all the lessons learned. I, I mean, the first time we ever had peer support and ever talked about that in a peer support group was the first OIS where Kyle was shot and almost killed in 05. Mm. And, you know, from a progressive agency like California and having just made a peer support group within a couple of years of that, we we had no idea that was available. No one was thinking about that stuff in the mid-90s, man. And uh, horribly... You know, you had to go through a really bad incident, take a bullet, lose lives, you know, around this, this whole drag incident. But um, you guys capitalized on every part of that for lessons learned. And, and it was really a positive and it's, it's great to see and learning that from Kevin and from Paula and what we derive from Rich's book. And, and you're here to tell that story. And I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're sharing it finally. Yeah, no, no, no doubt for sure. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of things that, you know, other people can take home. And that's why I think it's so important that, that we talk about this podcast. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't happen overnight. You know, counseling went on for me for about a year, but I went in, uh, maybe I'll, I wouldn't say a basket case, but I, I had issues, no doubt. And then when I left, I, I was good with it. And it, it's getting good with something you really can't change. It's understanding that every situation is different, but there's always similarities on how the body reacts. People, right. there's tools that you can help deal with those situations that, you know, us as humans react the same way. So some of the, the cures, some of the, the, the places to heal are, are similar. I'm never going to ever say they're same because until you walk the mile in their shoes, you never know. And, you know, every shooting incident is different. Every person that reacts to it is going to be different. And, you know, some of the traumas a, a year after, you know, I mean, it was a long process uh, to get back in a uniform. So, and that was, uh, I always say the only woman that's ever made me cry is my physical therapist from that, trying to break down scar tissue and uh, my eyes would water as she was doing it. But a kudos to her because I think that's why my arm is, is, is operates the way it does. I blessed with uh, some physical therapists that just went that extra mile to make sure they could do everything for me to, to make that right. And I spent a lot of time with them and they broke down scar tissue and worked through that. So it, it, I was out six months and then I went to light duty back at headquarters and I would go to physical therapy every morning for almost a year. Just wow. Yeah, working out that arm and yeah. just just kudos to them for taking the extra time, going the extra mile so I could have as best... Uh, the best arm I, I, I could possibly have. And I know they took great pride in that. And they, they, they yeah, they were, they were a family before it was over. And then just working in headquarters. I mean, everybody that works in headquarters, no one wants to go to headquarters. But that gave me a lot of friendships that I carried through the years, knowing the yeah. inner workings of, you know, the Kremlin, as we call it. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah and, working, we call it the, the ivory tower. Yeah. It's, it's our old agency. <laughs> 
the puzzle palace. It has all kinds of things. It, it, it does. It does. But to, to get those skill sets to, to work in a headquarters environment and get to know people that carried you through your year, years and as they as they get promoted to uh, the chief of wildlife, the chief of fisheries, and to have them on that one-to-one basis is priceless in, in getting things accomplished, I, I think. So, again, another... Uh, Thing that, another good thing that came out of it was was those relationships built and then trying to get acclimated back into the community, which I ended up transferring a little further south. I, I, I wouldn't say I had a difficult time. Uh, people, when I'd respond to help or something, they would make comments like, Carl Draga didn't do a very good job or, or talk about my friends in a very derogatory way. And I, I had... Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you'd go to a domestic and those are the types of things I would hear or writing a ticket or something. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I wasn't going to handle that well. The few times it happened, I'm like, I, I, need, I really need to get out of here for a while. I need to get yeah, some space. Catch from that, man. That, yeah. could be, that could be terminal in another direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's exactly what they wanted. That's exactly the response they wanted from me. So that's why I didn't give it to them because that's what they wanted. But I did. I moved uh, further south. I didn't want to leave the district because I had bonded very tightly with all the guys that were around me. Uh, I just moved about an hour south and, and things seemed to, to, to mellow out there. So And then that's where I spent the rest of my career, about in the middle of uh, Coas County, in the town of Stark, which uh, worked well for me. I always say I covered every uh, every patrol in the county because when I worked up north, I covered stuff up there uh, when people transferred out. And when I was down here, when people transferred out, it was close enough. So I actually, when they, when it was vacant, I covered every town in the county, which is, uh, I don't think too many, if any, other game wardens can say that. Again, making so, yeah. making relationships there so you can make things happen. So that's that's kind of what I was, you know, about through my career is making relationships and fixing problems along the way, you know, on on a county level, on a district level, um, mm-hmm. and, and then getting into international wildlife crime stoppers, which was, you know, the first time I had talked about my shooting in a long time, and I, I had a tough time with it, and I, I, you know, I was like wondering why am I breaking down over this? Why am I so emotional? And it's it's because I hadn't talked in a while. It'd been a couple of years yeah. since I'd been talking about it, and I'm like, you know, I yeah. yeah. Yeah, kind of need that cathartic process, man, to, to just share it every now and again. Rather, <clears throat> I mean, great, we're sharing it on our podcast forum, but even just, uh, you know, when we shared it behind the scenes <clears throat> several years ago when you and I met, or to share it at IWC, you know, with mm. uh, with everyone that's in that organization that will that can relate, mm-hmm. you know, that can learn from it. So uh, I'm really glad we are. And I mean, like like we said shortly before, uh, a little earlier in the pod, in this uh, broadcast, it it never really goes away. It never really, you don't really complete. I don't know if healing is the word or you completely get past it where, you know, you don't feel sorrow, you don't have dark moments, but all those moments get a little easier to handle and you take them into stride. And we just do the best we can from these incidents to learn from them and to pass on all the knowledge we possibly can to prevent other people, other officers, other game wardens from falling into a trap and maybe losing their life when, when they don't have to mm. because of training, because of mindset, because of preparation, because of support systems, whatever the case may be. And not necessarily the day of the incident, right? I mean, mm. think of, absolutely. Think of our first responder suicides. Think of depression. Mm. Think of all these things that we read about. We hear about on the national forum right now of critical incident fallout that wasn't handled 
to the best of the ability of either the agency, peers, tacticians, trainers, whatever the case may be. And hearing things like that, like getting you out of a district because you have these suspects you're dealing with that want to jab you in the face and say, drag it into a really good job. Mm. I mean, every time I would hear something like that, if I were in your shoes, if they had said that about my partner when, when Kyle was shot, I mean, talk about anger, resentment, talk about wanting to just put that guy through a wall or that gal or whatever the case may be. And on top of that, stirring up all of the morning emotions and the pain of watching and reliving that incident over and over again, because somebody says something so negative like that, it's good. You didn't have to stay in that district. Mm. You know, it's good that your agency was concerned enough to say, Hey, wait a minute, man, we got, we got to take you like, it's a quasi, you're going dark on a special operations unit or witness protection. We're going <laughs> to reimburse you in another district and where no one knows you yet. You're going to start fresh, maybe build some relationships. And it's little things like that that just matter. Yeah. And it's little and it's little things like that we see as examples of why we need to share these stories. And now, we, you know, now that we're on a podcast forum and other outreach mediums, you and I are hearing so many stories from other agencies mm-hmm. outside of Fish and Wildlife, you know, and we're reporting on them, you know, when, when we had Charlie Pitt on with the rural badge and you look at everything she's putting up on all these officer deaths mm. and how they happened and what we're mourning and paying them respects and lessons learned all over the country, not just on the West coast or the East coast. Certainly I I didn't see the necessity of that necessarily while I was laser focused on my career in my world of California. And I'm sure you didn't either uh, in New Hampshire, but now we're seeing it on a bigger scale. So uh, your, and your incident plays to that. Um, it, It certainly plays to just a horrible situation that worked out under the best possible way it could have for you personally. And I think for our agencies to learn from because of how it brought everybody together and how everybody had each other's backs. And that's inspiring. Anytime you hear that. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. And it, it, it's the year after, like you said, that's almost the the more critical time, the time yes. after when everybody's gone away and it, it settles down. That that that's you're right. Those are the times you start really thinking about it. And, th- and there was some issues along the way. I, I tried to transfer out earlier, and I met uh, with a lieutenant, and uh, he basically said he didn't want a broken officer. And, wow. Yeah, but at least yeah. he told me the truth. You know, I was, honest. I, I was a yep. little hurt back then, but af- after I look at it, A, it worked out really well. And B, thank God that he told me the truth. I, 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 I can appreciate that yeah. more, more so now than ever. And I, I always remember when we did our interview and, it, you know, I know it's near and dear to my heart. That's why I go at it. But I remember the look on your face when I started asking you about, you know, the time you had with your partner shot, because uh, to me, putting myself in those shoes probably would have been more traumatic than what I went through is having your partner there. And I just, I remember you looking at me and I'm like, I just ripped off the bandaid and maybe I shouldn't go there. And then you just took a deep breath and we talked about it. And after we stopped, you were like, man, I haven't talked about that in a long time. And yeah, good, bad, or indifferent, man. That's, that's where I went. And I, I'll never forget because the look on your face and deep breath and down we went because uh, that was such an impact. And I, I, I tried to put myself in your shoes and said, wow, uh, that, that's worse than being the victim is <laughs> being there. You know, it, it's, <laughs> that's a hundred percent accurate Wayne. you said mm. that, you said that just spot on. I mean, to see a young game warden shot and bleeding out in your arms and waiting and waiting for help that's not coming and being completely helpless to do anything but just deal with the medical trauma as best you can. Mm. Uh, 
we don't like to feel helpless in no. our job. No, we no. don't. No, well, no, no. We, we're alphas. We want to be there to protect ourselves, our family, our friends, our partners. And, and that was, that was the horrific part of that incident. And I would gladly have exactly like you mm-hmm. said, have taken a bullet for any of my brothers that day. Mm. Any of us on the team would have, and any of your brothers would have as well. Absolutely. And getting to know Colonel Jordan now in several interviews and just <laughs> what a what a great partner and what a great leader to have yes. over there at the top, yes. you know, in the top echelons of your command staff for New Hampshire. I'm inspired by a guy like Kevin. I just am mm. because he's that guy. Mm-hmm. And and we need that guy, that woman, you know, right. um, Nancy Foley. We mm-hmm. talked about her. Uh, what a great guest on Warden's Watch. Yes. An inspiration, a mentor, and a friend of mine who was my chief through that shooting incident you just referenced. Um, her love and support was invaluable to where we would go and progress and how we would pull positives and grow as an agency and you know, take any adversity fighting the cartels at face value and continue just to kick ass. That's, that's what we need in leadership. And you know, when you don't have that support, the depression the spiral, the self-doubt, the lack of confidence when you have all the tools to be an exceptional law enforcement officer, not just a game warden, but an exceptional first responder, you know, an exceptional sheepdog. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when you don't have that support. And you were very lucky that you had it. I was very lucky that I had it, but there's a lot of agencies and a lot of, you know, guys and gals out there doing our job that we've heard stories that didn't have it or their agencies don't, you know, it's a little less personal. I don't know. But the bottom line is it's super critical and it was critical to you getting back on that road to recovery. But so you were a year out, you were agonizing through PT, mm-hmm. you know, trying to, you know, and I got to just point this out. The biggest thing Kyle said when he was shot was he was so motivated and such an amazing officer. It's not only the, the physical pain, you know, obviously the injury and the recovery time, it's feeling like you're treading water and now you're going in a full sprint versus a marathon to get back up to the level to become that game warden you wanted to become so early mm. in your career and make a name for yourself and be that guy everybody can rely on. You were only two years on. Yeah. He was only a year on. So I I, I kind of you know parallel you and Kyle at the same point in your careers of two motivated guys. And now all of a sudden you guys are both shot and fortunately you survive. But now you got to play catch up. You got to prove yourself to everybody else. You got to prove yourself to yourself. There's all these different things going on that I can't even fathom because I wasn't there. I'm just watching it. So, how is that year for you? And having been Kyle's supervisor, knowing the year he went through to recover and the aftermath of going back in the field and having all those, those, those bugs to shake off, so to speak, how did it affect you? Talk to us about that. And when you really got to the point where I got this. It's all, you know, afterburners moving forward. I'm not, you know, looking back over my shoulder. I don't have that anxiety. I'm just going to be that game where I'm meant to be. <laughs> yeah, it was a long process. And there's, there's, there's peaks and there's valleys through the whole thing. You know, working through with a counselor is great because you can, you can stop in that counselor, whether you're meeting once a week, once a month or whatever, and kind of, kind of dump on these peaks and valleys to where you're at. And then hopefully they have some insight for you because they've counseled other people that have gone through this type of stuff. Yeah. So it, you know, physically trying to get back, I'll never have the strength that I had, but always thinking that, geez, this is great the way it is because A, I'm alive and it's functional. Uh, this could have been the end of my career, John, and that would have been the worst thing for me because, you know, I always wanted to be that cowboy in the woods. And if Carl Draga took that away from me, I would have been very angry. Right. So yeah. that that in itself made me 
I, no one was going to take this job that I wanted so bad for my whole life away from me. Nobody. So that was a motivator. That was a motivator that, to get back and get integrated and to get things going. And that there was other things occurring through this time frame too, like being a guy with two years on, I didn't have enough sick leave. I didn't have enough annual leave. Right. I burned it all out. It was gone. So here am I. Sure. Here I am, a guy that's not going to get paid anymore because right. <laughs> because I'm out yeah. on I, I'm out on workers' comp get ready, but I'm not going to get my full salary. I'm using up everything I got banked. The legislator steps inside because of this, and state police actually had a law if you were injured in the line of duty, I believe. Or, or shot in the line of duty that you would get all your stuff back, your 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 annual leave, your sick leave. Well, game wardens didn't have that, that we were excluded in that law and we were then included. So there was legislation brought forward from a legislator out of Colebrook, uh, Representative King brought that forward and pushed that through. And uh, it was pretty much unanimous that A, my, my time was attached to it. So they brought all my time back that I, I had and reinstated that as well as brought game wardens up to the same level as the state police as far as in the line of duty injuries and, and what the expectation was and what they were going to get. So it brought us back up to the, to that point, and it, it got me all my all my leave and all my, you know, you don't really want to take annual leave when you're out because you get shot and burn all right. your time because that's, that, 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 right. that, that kind of sucks too. But there's, there's a lot of that goes on. And, and, and with any injury an officer has, as they work through it, it's very similar to trying to get back to that, that spot where you are. And the older that you get, the worse it gets, too, because your body doesn't heal quite as quite as it, like it did <laughs> when I was uh, trying right. to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's ups and it's downs. And, you know, I, I never had to go back to counseling about it because, uh, yeah, I, I was good. I remember walking into Paula Booth and we talked about that in hers and I was done. That that was good physically. Yeah. I wasn't there yet, and then getting back into the community too was it, it was tough. And once we made those changes, and uh, I transferred out just a little ways, I think things were flying pretty dang straight, which uh, it, it worked out well. Yeah. So and then plenty of time after that, I got assaulted again a year about a year later out of that. Uh, he ended up doing some time in the county jail, but uh, I think I responded appropriately. I had other law enforcement officers with me that uh, responded appropriately. I, I actually learned a lot from those beginning incidents from the shooting about getting back up and not trying to tackle things all yourself, in- incorporating to the point of, uh, you know, I went to a state police officer when he was off duty. <laughs> and he and he's like, I'm off duty, Wayne. He goes, but I'm not going to let you go alone. Off yeah. duty, he jumps in my cruiser and we go address the issue nice. that ends up in, a, in an assault and an arrest. And, uh, you know, uh, that, that that was great of him, Scott Stepanian, to, to, to do that. He, he stepped up to the plate and we also got some other backup uh, to, to address that problem. But uh, <laughs> And we're always on duty no matter what. I would have done the same for him if he needed help. I've been called by state police when they needed something in the area. I know you're off duty, but it's just up the road, Wayne. Can you help? Or you just signed off, I know, but you know there's a trooper that's in that area that needs uh, backup. Can you go? We, we all jump on that board and we go lend a hand because... I think the more rural you are, and I, lo- I, I love the rural badge because she highlights what we do out in the country, out in those rural areas as game wardens, as sheriffs, as local police officers, as state police officers. She highlights that, and she also highlights the sacrifice that they do nationwide for those. So that was, that was a great podcast we did with her, and I certainly appreciate her work to highlight yeah. this stuff. 
Yeah, and we've both had different incidents from different sides, and every warden has these incidents, I think. Even if you're not directly involved, the first time you see a brother that's been killed in the line of duty, it hurts my heart every time. It, it, you know, I know yeah, what that family's yeah. going through, and it's it's traumatic to, to, to watch it on the news or see it on the internet or, or see it on the rural badge. It, it, it hurts my heart. That's 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 what I, I can really say. It, it, it does that to you, and, and you've been through it. You know what their families are going through, and, and and those new guys, as they experience it and as it gets closer, the the more you recognize it. They certainly have a lot more tools than we did then, and I'm very happy, and I'm glad that we're bringing this out. I'm glad we're talking about it because you know some people. They don't want to ask me, and then it comes out. They're like, "Hey, Wayne, do you mind talking? Do you, you know, can I ask you a question?" I'm like, "Absolutely." I would trainees. I would bring them yeah. to where I got shot. Talk them through the scenario. Hey, this is where I got shot. This is where he yep. was standing. This is where my cruiser was. This is where I ended up. I brought my son there. As a matter of fact, we were there the other day, and I'm like, "Did I show you?" And he's like, "Yes, you did that." So that that's nice. important to to see those things and understand. And when you're having these conversations, you can actually put the visuals on there, and it's it's good training. Yeah, it, it, it's critical. It's invaluable, especially for a young warden's career. And, you know, Charlie over at the Rural Badge, mm. you know, we just talked about how many officer deaths we get, you know, reminded of through her information, through her outreach. And, you know, the days of being that, you know, solo cowboy in the woods on that single horse we ride, mm-hmm. we're trying to eliminate that as much as possible. You know, we're trying to double up on patrols. Mm, right. Um, I know on the California front, it, you know, the unique part, we talk about this a lot, as a game warden, you've got to work alone. You may have your canine with you. You may not. But 90% of the time, you're going to have to think on your feet, get out of a situation if you're being ambushed like you did. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have countless stories of stuff you know we narrowly avoided and stuff I did by myself 20 miles into the backcountry with no backup. But you know, getting away from that with all of the different dangers we face, um, you know, domestic terrorism i think about you know uh armed multiple armed gunmen you know in the woods and stuff we deal with on the met front with the cartels you know that are everywhere in the country doing lots of stuff you know it's it's great when we can double up and agencies are starting to see that and even with Mm. manpower issues and us still being limited in numbers we're still encouraged now to double up rather than wait a minute guys you're not covering enough territory being out there by yourselves in your independent districts and that's a, that's a change that comes out of incidences like yours Wayne like incidences of what we what we face on the west coast um but the other point that i think we got to share before we close out is when you mentioned it you got to that year mark you had that last talk with Paula and you're like i'm good mm. you know and you were still sore Mm-hmm. Your body was still coming back, but you know what? After seeing what Kyle went through on his physical recovery of pushing, you know, and his, his gunshot was by far a career ender for most game wardens, mm. but he pushed through, he was not going to let it stop him. So he came back physically in a year. He was sore, but he was climbing like a, like a mountain goat. He was out there doing it, but mentally and emotionally, psychologically, maybe not so much, mm-hmm. maybe too soon. You know, maybe a little overzealous in in some things, maybe not, you know, things we've we've talked about of and I'd almost rather have that that psychological complete package and be whole that way and carry around some scars a little later before I get back in. And we always reverse engineer and do it the other way. Once we can physically do the job, hey, we're alphas, we're sheepdogs, we're not victims, we're not sheep, we're going out. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. And it's not good for the officer. It's not good for the public they're going to serve. And it's certainly not good for the families, the friends, the support system. So um, you did it right. You were very lucky that 
you had Paula way back in the day when extensive counseling was not encouraged. And I think that's a huge message out of, uh, out of your, your situation here. Yeah. And the interesting thing in that podcast is she's starting to focus outside just the officers and their families and everything else they're going through so that she gets mm-hmm. the whole picture of that incident and addresses any mental health that needs to be addressed. And I'm so happy you brought up the patrol thing too, because I always encourage my guys to work together and it's because yes. their backup is always far away. And that's yep. if, that's if they can be found. That's if they can be found. So two yeah. guys. Operative word if there. Yes. Critical. <laughs> yes. And there's, right. there's, there's two sets of eyes there. There's two sets of ears. There's a witness. It's just so much more effective, I feel. And you drive each other to be better game wardens, too, or be better police officers, too, because you start looking at the details. You know, one guy's doing the talking, one, other, one the other guy's doing looking, and might see that hidden handgun, might see that violation, and then, you know, be able to communicate that to the other guy. And I think we were, and me and the colonel worked a lot together, and I learned his techniques for interviewing because he's a fantastic interviewer. And I hope that that, that that's reflected in, you know, whether it's the Warden's Watch podcast, the Thin Green Line podcast, as our, and my interviewing interviewing skills were developed through Kevin Jordan and doing investigations into wildlife crime. It just, you, you, you take their strengths. And when he left me to be a lieutenant in the southern part of the state, I actually took a whole bunch of my cards and I wrote on the back, this sucks. And I would hide them. I'd go in his office and when he was captain and stuff, I'd stuck them in it. So he'd find my card with this sucks on the back because we were close. We were, we had a good yeah. time, but <laughs> awesome. yeah, but, but, but he, I was a fledgling and I was able to fly after that point when he left. Uh, I, it was my turn to fly. It was my turn to, to take up the reins, to be the sergeant, to be the lieutenant and, and lead on those fronts and encourage my guys. And, and believe me, some of my good game warden friends used to bust my chops about us working together all the time and i'd be yeah. like yeah we do work together all the time i remember a defense attorney saying yeah you guys hunting you know you're, you're a pack of game wardens i said well the best hunter in the woods is the wolf and they hunt in packs so why wouldn't we Very <laughs> right right i mean i mean that, that that's that's you know exactly how it's how it sits right mm-hmm. we do really good work alone because we have to by design but most agencies don't they don't normally run alone and you know right. patrol cruisers there's a patrol partner and you know, unless you're a deputy sheriff in a really rural area, like we talk, you know, Charlie in the rural badge, mm. um, and even those guys will double up and those gals will triple up when they can. And and we're just starting to do it. So it, it shouldn't be any different for game wardens. It's just not traditional. Right. And it's, it's progressive because a bottom line is a little less call response versus officer safety and going home that night. I mean, come on, let's do the math. What's really most important. Um, in the end of the day, with the challenges we face as law enforcement officers as a whole in this country now, with all the challenge, with all the mm-hmm. dangers that are out there, I'd rather I'd rather see us doubled up with a canine mm-hmm. if you have that opportunity than running solo and being that solo cowboy like you and I did all most all our career. Yeah, no, no, no doubt, no doubt. And you could be more effective, I think, as a, as a twosome. Uh, I think the quality as a supervisor, look at the quality of the cases that came out of those, and I. I don't, I don't know if we would have got that quality with a single guy not being able to watch and look while he's you know, engaged with a suspect, to, to find that evidence by looking and then develop it right away like that. When, when you have to keep your eyes on that suspect, when you have right. to, uh, that extra set of eyes can just 
do so much. And the other thing, he's listening to the conversation with the other person, and he's developing questions as well. So when there's a pause, now I have questions, just like you and I do when we do our interviews. Where sometimes yeah. we read each other's mind, and I'm like, oh, he took my question. Okay, I got to go to the next one. <laughs> but you you develop that that working relationship where you start yeah. knowing what the other guy is up to, how he's feeling it out, and you're formulating that next question in your head. So when he takes a break, now it's your time to ask the questions and he's starting to formulate other questions and it just develops an investigation so well and the colonel and I were so effective at it. Uh, it, it, it shocked me in the long run that we could actually think uh, what the other one was doing and we knew what track we were on and where we were going. And yeah, so those are the things that, like you said, supervisors really have to look at the quality. Maybe the quantity is not going to be there, but the quality, I think, is going to step up. The safety steps up. The response to a game warden in distress, if you can find mm-hmm. them. I always said it was always my fear if they needed help. The trooper that I know isn't going to be able to, to go out to, to 14 and a half, the pond, and know exactly where they are. Know where next, that is, right? Yeah. The next yeah. game warden might. That, yeah. And then you're going to do a U-turn at this abutment. Then you're going to go down a levee road and you're yeah. on a Willow 2 track. And you no know, access to the road <laughs> tracks. They're like, what? Yeah. I don't run my cruiser down there. Yeah. No, it's it, where, where you were ambushed. You know, that all stood out mm-hmm. you know, as I'm reading the book and then hearing the story and, and diving into the forensics of it, naturally the logistics. And it's uh, and again, in Rich's book, he, he outlines that pretty tightly in, in the training video and stuff. But but that's it. That's mm-hmm. it, man. We just work in such crazy locations. Yes. And they might even be, not be that far off a highway, but just finding the right road to get that quarter mile mm-hmm. or that half mile where the shit's hitting the fan. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just kind of landlocked, you know, like, I, I can't quite get there. There's this field in this creek, and I know he's right there. She's right there. And yeah. yeah and you, and just, you're away uh, from your cruiser. You're actually in the woods, and you could be, uh, you know, miles away from your cruiser. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of the operations that we had to do. You park and you walk a, a mile in before you start getting into yeah. that area just so you're not seen. Yeah. That's definitely a, a two man operation for sure. But for some guys, I mean, when they're by themselves and they, they run into situations, I just uh, talked to a good friend in Pennsylvania where one of his officers ran into a meeting at night in okay. a, a wildlife area, had guns drawn and everything on both sides. It's just, it's getting crazy. And you don't know what you're, because when people want to hide, they don't go to the street, they go to the woods. When they want to hide something, they put something in the woods. How many people get buried in the woods? And that those are the things mm-hmm. game wardens are tripping over. That by yeah. looking for wildlife violators, we are finding murderers. We are encountering crime that is being trying to be disposed in the woods. Definitely nationwide. Yeah, huge. With that, is there anything else before we close out that you think from a lessons learned standpoint or anything you just want to share? that you derive this many years later as you look back, because here we, here we come up on, wow, man, we're coming up on a big anniversary, right? We're yes. here. We are just not, not too many days from August 19. No. This thing's going to launch. And, uh, and, and this will come out actually on August 19th for their schedule, which is uh, yeah. going to be, and I didn't plan it that way either. It was just, uh, <laughs> it was no, just going to hit. It was meant to be. Meant yeah. to be. You know, looking back, I'm I'm really glad we had this talk, and I really appreciate your friendship. You know, from two years, uh, we've come a long ways, and in interacting, having similar talks like this prior to this, and building this up, and trying to frame it because 
when we started talking about this, I didn't really know how we would frame it. I know I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to share this. I kept getting questions from other officers around the country. Hey, we'd like to hear about your shooting. And of course, they always phrase that with, uh, can we can we talk to you about this? Can we ask you those questions? Yes, you can ask yeah. me. If you have questions, please ask me because I want to share everything I can. I want to make you guys better officers. I want to educate the public on what I went through and what game wardens go through. I want to share that part because I think as game wardens, we're not really good at sharing some of our best cases, some of our, uh, you know, our strengths. We, we're, we're the tough guy that tries to hold it in. And that's exactly what we want to dispose of is that tough guy that holds it in. We want to tell you counseling works because we've been there. We've done that. I want to tell you that, you know, training works because, you know, that woman that, that, that shoved me down and told me to get out from, uh, that I was dead because I got out from cover, those, those types of things. You know, normally I would even think of her, but I think, you know, I, I look at that person and I thought to myself, I'll never learn anything from her. And guess what? I probably learned the most, uh, <laughs> the, the thing that saved my life from her. So when you get those instructors that sometimes you start off by not having respect for, there's always something you can learn from them. If they're an instructor, there's a reason why. But, you know, sometimes we start criticizing, especially as law enforcement officers right away, our instructors. And there's always something they bring to the table. T- take that, extract that from every training. There's a reason you're getting trained in it. It's, you know, sometimes, you know, we all think it's from headquarters, you know. But it, it's not. There's, there's something we can get a value out of that. And as a general public, you know, I want you to know that your uh, game wardens, your law enforcement officers, this is, this is where they're at. This is where they've been. And this is where they're going. And they need, their, they need your support. So, and if you're listening to us, I'm hoping you're supporting us. So, yeah, no, thanks, John. I really appreciate this one. It was tough. I I got up at five o'clock this morning and I reviewed newspaper articles. I, you know, know, and and, and again, it was like looking forward to it. Not really, but once we get into it, it's, it's, it feels good when you get it all out again, starts to build up uh, as August 19th, it gets closer and closer. It always builds up. But it's good to to release. It's good to talk about. It. Yeah, no, my my honor and pleasure, brother. And I'm I'm glad you wanted to do this this way. And <clears throat> the research into this, and reading Rich's book, and looking at videos, and talking to Paula, I've learned a ton. Learn more about you. You know, <laughs> you know, my partner in in crime, so to speak, on this podcast, and everything yeah. we do together for the fingering line. And I think we're really blessed to have the coast to coast fanfare and and just yeah. bring the whole country together. And and that's that's a real privilege. That's a real yes. treat. And these are hard things to share, and I'm glad you were willing to do it. Yeah, I think everyone's going to enjoy it and get something out of it. And we and we look forward to feedback or questions mm. from any of you, uh, any of you folks listening or, or watching this one. This one was special to Wayne and I for obvious reasons, and hope it resonates with you guys as well. I'm sure it will. We can never forget those guys that gave that ultimate sacrifice, no matter what. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. Thank you.
This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.